This is Superfood Sundays, a plant-based podcast with Chef Lynette. So for tonight, actually, we are having the plant-based burger, which I, we really, once in a while, we get into that, I think. Once in a while, we treat ourselves to plant-based burger, which actually is pretty delicious. I don't recommend that just to do that often because I also, my philosophy is that overall whole food plant-based, not processed food. And you know, I'm not sure exactly how processed these new sort of like plant-based stuff are, but I think once in a while, if you crave for having a burger and you don't want to really do the red meat, the traditional burger, I think that's a much healthier version of that. Yeah, definitely. Let me tell you this. Actually, my mom was here this past summer and we have a lot of great plant-based Persian food. And okay. this came to me you know, as an idea, actually, I want, I'm thinking of this to, to open up a plant-based Persian restaurant. And I think it's going to be amazing because food is very healthy. It's Mediterranean food, right? Yes. Even our meat was supposed to be very healthy. It was yes. all grilled. We didn't really have any deep fried meat or anything like that. And when we serve our meals, there's always a platter, a airball platter, or I don't know what you call it. They're just like basically greens, yes. like basil, like cilantro, green onions, like uh, radish, everything. So we put this as a side dish. Yes. We always have different kinds of pickled vegetables as a side dish. We do pickle a lot. We pickle carrots, potato, beans, you name it, different kinds of cabbages, and it's delicious. Yeah. As far as just the kind of amalgamation of American food, we don't really, we haven't really picked up on the pickling that has happened like all around mm -hmm. the world. Like when you go to Europe and a lot of that I know is really just stemmed from years of not having refrigeration when refrigeration exactly. didn't exist. It's more of a cultural thing and a survival thing, so to speak. But with that being said, from a gastro point of view, like how important are those to integrate for just gut health in general? Another interesting question, and I'm very happy you asked this. It's a difference between pickled and fermented. Not all pickled food are fermented. So what is considered to be healthy is actually the process of fermentation that produces probiotics, right. that produces basically this bacteria. And you can have vegetables, and there are some arguments that actually pickled vegetables, they may not be as healthy as just fresh vegetables, but when they become fermented, because now they are probiotics, and there was a study came out last year uh, from Stanford University that they basically had these two groups of people. One of them, they were on healthy plant-based diet. The other group, on top of the healthy plant-based diet, they had one portion, one meal that was fermented food is like kimchi, is like kombucha, exactly sauerkraut, yes, and Greek yogurt. So they saw that people, the group that they had at least one portion of fermented meal, no matter what, they had much diversity in their gut microbiome compared to the other group which by its own, it was over, they had, they were healthy, they were eating healthy, they were plant-based, but there is an added benefit we know in terms of incorporating fermented food to your diet. Yeah. Yeah. And there's levels to it too. I think that especially the kombucha explosion and 
one of the things that I fear is that there's so many different brands and there's so many different levels of quality that people aren't necessarily getting what they think they're getting out of kombucha because now it's just so mm-hmm. widespread. Are there any kind of pointers that you could suggest for people when they're buying kombucha or even making it, so to speak? So that's also a matter of debate. Kombucha overall is controversial. Obviously, it's probiotic and it's fermented. And I really love it because of the taste and flavor of it. And it's so refreshing. Yeah, it's like soda. But not. it does, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it does contain a lot of sugar at the same time. Mm. Something to point out. It's just a very sugary drink compared to if you have kimchi, which is fermented cabbage, or if you have other other probiotics or fermented foods, sauerkraut. So those are presumed to be much healthier because they don't have that much concentrated sugar. Okay, that's a really good pointer. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned your mother a few minutes ago, and I would love to know more about how you grew up, what those early influences were. Did you grow up in um, Iran? Yes, I okay. did grow up okay. in Iran. Okay, yeah. and I think you touched on it already a bit about how Persian food and really lots of Mediterranean and lots of food like outside of the United States, to be honest, has a big vegetable component to go along with the meat. And it's not a lot of fried food and it's not a lot of convenience food. So, yeah, how did you grow up and how did all of this kind of come together to really make the informed decisions that you're making now as an adult? I grew up in a healthy culture in a sense that we were used to eat healthy. The foods were really organic. They were fresh uh, out of farmer's market. And I'm grateful for that. We always, as I said, we had a site in uh, Iran, uh, the foods. There are a lot of eggplants, garlic, onion, cabbage, different kinds of uh, vegetables always served with meat and rice. But at that point, obviously, that was the norm. So I didn't really have anything else to compare with. So I thought, okay, I didn't know even that's healthy, right? So that was what everybody was used to eat. And, you know, all the time as a kid, you don't like what (laughs) your parents want you to eat. We wanted to eat pizza, right? Because pizza was coming. There were all these burger joints. They started opening as I was, you know, going to high school. And we wanted those instead of our traditional food because we thought, oh, our traditional food is just, it's not as delicious as these like burgers are. So... Now, in retrospect, now going through all these things, I know being a gastroenterologist, being a patient, all these things, I think the life experience, now I appreciate the food that I had, the opportunity that I had when I was a kid. And I'm hoping that my gut microbiome being exposed early to all that healthy food (laughs) is still giving me healthy yeah. But up until very recently, I'm sure we are going to get back to this. My diet was not really great. Right. It's interesting yeah. because as someone not growing up in the United States, you don't have the traditional story of, yeah, we were eating like crap. And then when I turned 18 and left the house, then this happened. It's more like we mm-hmm. were totally okay. And then all of a sudden... <laughs> American foods invaded our country right. <laughs> with pizza and convenience and taste to make us addicted. 
So you had a, a reverse, I, I guess, a bit. When did you right. move to the United States? I think I moved now 14 years ago. It was terrible, I think, because I come here, I'm a busy professional. I'm constantly working in the hospital. You probably heard the worst food you can Is find the in the hospital cafeteria. It's terrible. Like, you would think that would be the place. I'm like, I don't know what's going on in here, but... <laughs> Right. I know. It's crazy. Mind-blowing. But being with all these doctors throughout my life and having doctor friends and going through education, even as doctors, we don't know better. People think we know and we should know. I agree. But we don't get any official training. Let me put it in this way. Yeah. We don't learn this. It's mind-blowing that you know, as residents and fellows, we had noon conferences almost every day and food was served and that was free. Food usually was catered from some, some good place, decent place. But food was always just like meat, heavy, just so buttery, so greasy, deep fried mac and cheese for resident doctors, for basically attending. And it's mind-blowing now I know because I went and learned that on my own. And I showed curiosity, but there are a lot of doctors that they don't basically, they know, not that they don't know, but you don't think it's really serious. You don't think that it's going to affect your health down the road. Yeah. You think, okay, human. so I'm having this. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. You forget, I think, on day-to-day -day basis. You always think that you have time down the road sometime, someday I'm going to eat healthier. Yeah. I definitely realized when I started Superfood School and our Instagram page, all of a sudden I started to get a lot of DMs from people with really serious issues. And I'm thinking like, wait a minute, that means that there's a disconnect between you and your medical practitioner. If you're coming to us where I'm a chef, I don't, I have an art degree. I don't have, like, I don't have, like, I don't have these things that you think I do. But again, the system is so twisted that people are not getting what they're needing inside of the medical system. But with that being yeah. said, I think gut health is the entree for people of all diets to be able to to really tap into that. So yeah, you have an interesting early influence story. But with that, I would love to know more about your adventures in CrossFit and how that really just brought you to the place nutritionally where you are now. Because for those who don't know what CrossFit is, like, first of all, I give you kudos for CrossFit because <laughs> CrossFit is no joke. <laughs> <laughs> it's no oh joke. It's its own athletic cult as well. Every little fitness has it's, a fitness it is. Exactly. Totally. Is I shouldn't that. say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You reformed. It's all good. But how did that impact your diet? Because it's, the CrossFit is not exclusively for plant-based people. So how did that work? And, and how did it come to be about where you are now? So exactly, as we were chatting at the time, it was six years ago that we started, my husband and I, we started uh, CrossFit and we were taking that very seriously. It became this sort of, as you say, cold, I was telling my, <laughs> my husband, you know, it, it becomes this sort of like lifestyle and cult that we were going to, to the gym um, four or five times a week for four or five years until COVID hit. 
and we were living in LA at the time. Basically, it's just the culture. Everybody is just talking about protein, protein, and it's mainly animal protein and protein powder, the supplements, this kind of thing, and all these things that you know. And I remember I was a fellow at Yale. It was four years ago and I was counting my macros and all these things, trying to mm. you know, increase muscle mass. And I decided that basically plants are useless <laughs> because <laughs> they are useless calorie and they're not giving me the bulk that I need in terms of muscle. So I have to try to stay away from them as much as I can and add to my protein. Wow. And I was just like eating chicken, eggs, and cheese and zero plants. Cheese. And I remember. Oh my God. <laughs> one of my co-fellows once saw my lunch and she said, oh my goodness, you are going to bust your kidney. <laughs> Seriously. I said, and I said, no, don't worry, I'm just doing this program. I, I need to in basically increase my muscle mass. And I didn't know better. And I was yeah, GI fellow. Can even let that yeah. think. Yeah. It's yeah. just, I didn't know. I thought that, oh, wow, I'm healthy. You think you're healthy, right? Because you're working out, you have muscle, and you're lean, and you're healthy. But you don't know what you're doing because you're not feeding your gut microbiome. And I didn't mm. know at the time, I didn't know any better. So the revolution came later. And then in retrospect, as we were chatting before this, when I look back, I sometimes wonder because as I got diagnosed with breast cancer two years ago, and I'm thinking nobody knows, I cannot really say there's no proof, but was there really any association between my diet? Was that any risk factor by any means? We know that I've got microbiome in constant interaction with our immune system. I'm sure in the next 10, 20 years, we are going to know more and more. But I have no doubt, Lynette, that our gut microbiome is going to be known that there is a role of our gut microbiome in fighting cancer or decreasing the risk of cancer. So that's in your crystal ball. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's in my crystal yeah, ball. Yeah, I, I believe it. I believe it. And I get it because, you know, the saying, follow your gut. And now with all of this new research coming to the surface about the gut and the brain connection, really, your brain is actually speaking to you <laughs> through your gut because it's your second brain. And yeah, you should probably follow your gut. How has that been for you as far as the gut and the brain connection, you know, with just the work that you've been doing, your patients? How real is that? I think a lot of times things start to become buzzwords. And then when they become buzzwords, mm -hmm. a lot of times they might lose value. But for someone who's literally living and breathing this work, really how important is it? So it's really important, Lynette. It's just the future. Gut-brain connection is nothing new. We knew that. But the layer, the added layer is our gut microbiome here, which now we are alluding to as gut-brain. Basically, it's just gut-brain microbiota connection. So it's just like a, a long sentence. But we know the pathways that there are nerves coming. Our autonomic nervous system is our vagus nerve, which is the largest, which is the longest nerve in our body, comes from our brain, goes right to our gut. 
and basically innervates every organ in our digestive system. And we know that there are nerves and signals going back from our gut back to our brain, and that's how we sense pain, abdominal pain, that's how we sense bloating or distension, because those nerves are communicating with our brain. So this is something that is known, and so basically we are knowing more and more as the research is going on. I think the added layer is now that these microbes in our guts, how do they interact with our brain? And there is amazing research going on. Um, so we know that serotonin, just everybody probably knows serotonin, the happy hormone, that's basically the uh, hormone that circulates in our body. And we thought up until very recently that it's produced in our brain. It, when it's the levels of serotonin, when they go low, when uh, they decrease, we tend to get depressed, right? That's why we take SSRIs, Prozac, in order to boost our serotonin. So now we know that over 95% of our serotonin is actually made in our gut. It's not in our brain, it's made in our gut, and then it's just doing the function in our brain. So it's crazy. And all those cells that produce serotonin are in close interaction with our gut microbiome. That's why the research now is working on the role of gut microbiome in anxiety, depression, Alzheimer's, dementia, ADHD, all this good stuff. Wow. So for people that are looking to optimize themselves, what should they be asking their doctors? Are there specific like tests? I know there's a lot of kits. There's some kits where you can just send in your poop, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the, what are some things that people can do to be able to just oh, get ahead of it? Unfortunately, we are not there yet. And I know I'm aware of all these kits and everything. These are more commercial stuff out there and they're designed. I'm, I'm just so um, against these because I know people just basically pay a lot of money, get one of these kits, and then they bring the results to me. And nobody knows we are not there to analyze any of this. There's just a big list of different kinds of bacteria. Nobody knows what their functions are. And we are just stuck here. We don't know really how to apply this. And research really is in its infancy when it comes to designating each different kinds of bacteria. We know about the groups of bacteria. Some of them are, you know, known to be more beneficial. Some of them are more harmful, but that doesn't mean anything. If you have even the, it's normal to have some of these harmful bacteria in your gut, that doesn't mean anything, or at least we don't know what it means at this point. So the only thing that really, to be honest with you, the whole evidence, data, everything, if you want to take it from me as a gastroenterologist, the only thing we know is that in terms of gut microbiome, the diversity matters. It's just like this big ecosystem. So the ecosystem is more resilient and can survive different environmental threats if there is diversity, if there are different kinds of uh, species of animals and plants and you name it. Rather than if there is an ecosystem that there are only two animals and two plants, if something happens and those animals and plants get killed, obviously the ecosystem goes down. So the diversity matters and the diversity of gut microbiome matters. And the only thing that we know that increases this diversity at this point is increasing the diversity of dietary fibers, which are the plants that we eat, which are the vegetables, legumes, 
everything. So the diversity, the more diverse our food is in terms of the dietary plant, the more diverse our gut microbiome becomes. And we don't really know beyond that. That makes sense. And it brings me to a couple of things that I wanted to talk about that I read from the resources on your website, which is great. And there's some takeaways. And there is a guide that gives you seven tips for, you know, gut health and wellness. And two of them really spoke out to me. And I'm like, okay, we got to talk about those. And you just started to talk about one of them, which was tip number two, which is going back to the diversity of the plants in your diet. Like basically don't eat spinach and that's it. (laughs) Exactly. Very interesting. Up until recently, again, everything was about the quantity. It was about the gram of fiber. We were telling our patient, make sure incorporate at least 25 to 30 gram of fiber a day in your diet. But then the research, American God Project, actually it's this big, huge project that in 2017, they came up with, they did a study that they showed actually it's not quantity that matters. It, you cannot, as you said, eat spinach the whole day and be happy and proud that you're meeting your fiber goal. (laughs) I hate to break it to people when you think you're doing really good at something, but then there's like levels to it and you're like, oh my gosh, you don't realize how hard I worked to even get to this point. Exactly. And so they, American God Project, actually they ran this study on two groups of people. One group, they had only 10 different types of fiber in their food throughout the week. And the Mm. other group, they had at least 30 different kinds of fiber. And then they saw that with 30 30 different plants in their diet had much more diverse gut microbiome compared to the other one that they only incorporated 10 different fibers. So very important, at least what I tell my um, patients, clients, and you saw in that tutorial that I say 30 is your lucky number. Yeah. (laughs) I had a post last year on St. Patrick's Day. Do you know what your lucky number is? And it's 30. Because of this, everybody, you should think to at least have 30 different kinds of fiber in your diet in one week. And Lynette, people think when I tell them this, they say, oh my goodness, this is so hard. 30 And it's not that hard. I don't know. I always think if you become curious, I'm sure in your school, you work with people around this scarcity mindset. I think the most important thing is to be curious and to open up to try different things, to try something that you've never tried or you haven't tried in a long time. Yeah, I don't see it as, as something that's super daunting. It reminds me of... The concept with gardening and farming, as far as rotating your crops, it's pretty much mm-hmm. the same thing. You can't grow the same thing in the same dirt year after year because, again, the microbiome of the dirt is not going to the dirt, right? It's not going to take the same way. And it makes me think about the different schools of thought when it comes to like organic and farmers market produce. There are people that really stand behind not washing their produce, like specifically organic stuff from like the farmer's market, Mm -hmm. because they believe that dirt doesn't hurt, you know, a little dirt doesn't hurt. And that's really helpful Mm -hmm. because now more than ever, everyone's just like sanitizing everything. And I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea. 
I'm like, I think we're doing too much. I, I cannot agree more than it. I sometimes I'm just really worried about this amount of sanitizers that I'm using myself. Yeah. Because it just matters. Just the whole chemicals that we use throughout the day, they're killing our gut microbiome or they're killing our environment microbes, like the microbe in dirt, right? And at some point you go crazy because you cannot control everything, even if it's air freshener that we use. So they're chemicals, right? Absolutely. The makeup that we use. I love my makeup. I can't, I can't deny that. <laughs> but then I don't know. It's just there, is, there are all these kinds of things that chemicals, the plastic dishes that we use, then the microwave things, they're all everything. affecting, I think. The carpet, the paint. Yeah the toys for the yeah. kids, especially with children. When it comes to children and building a healthy gut microbiome, what are some good tips for parents? Because you mentioned that earlier that you feel good that you had that foundation in Iran to be able to just have fresh fruits, fresh vegetables. But what can parents do to help build that healthy gut right from the start? Important question. So, you know, our microbiome, so we think that when we are living in, when we are just in utero, so our body is completely sterile. There is no, no microbe in our body or in our gut. Our first exposure to our gut microbiome is presumed to be happening during vaginal delivery. Yes. So that's when yes. we basically pick up all these good mama's microbes yes. and then just that's our first boost of the gut microbiome some uh, moms they get worried when they end up having c-section or because they basically they think that they deprive their baby from the healthy gut microbiome which that's a matter of debate but i want to say it's not a big problem because the second exposure with these great microbes happens through uh the milk the breast milk yeah so the theory is that the more you can breastfeed your kids, basically the healthier uh, the gut microbiome would become. So that's the second thing. We think that the gut microbiome actually stabilizes itself by age two, three, but obviously things change and all these environmental factors and diet and so forth. But the base is during those uh, first few years. And I would recommend, I think what I always think, as you said, uh, with my background, that when it's just like mind blowing, when I go to restaurants here in the States and they bring the kids menu, it's always mac and cheese, burger, <laughs> pizza, uh, fries. Carb, like really I starchy, know. like simple carbs. Yeah. And so good though. There's zero vegetable. <laughs> there's zero vegetable anywhere. I think at the level of policy should happen in this country that we need to uh, really introduce kids to vegetables instead of pizza, burger, uh, and grilled cheese sandwich and all these things that they're just, they don't have, I don't understand. It really actually upsets me when I see all these things. You know, we can have a kid have a portion of salad or just like grilled vegetables. So add seasoning, make it delicious, add some dressing. You're, you're a chef, so I'm sure better than me yeah. that <laughs> the plant-based food can be really delicious. Yeah, it's all about the seasoning. So for those, um, I guess, like worst case scenario, if someone had, they were born through C-section and then they didn't get breastfed, 
what are some things mm-hmm. that could potentially happen later on down the line? And this is obviously for like potential parents, right? I don't exactly know, but the thought is that obviously there isn't, I haven't seen any research that really like focused on these kind of people specifically who basically didn't have this, you know, initial exposure to gut microbiome. But still, just you have this ability because you pick up microbes from everywhere, even by as a kid, by playing in dirt in outside in environments. There is another theory that, you know, having your kid playing out a few times a week actually helps their microbiome, helps the diversity of microbiome or feeding them the right food. So I would say even if that's the case, I wouldn't freak out or I wouldn't be worried. There's still a lot in our control with intentional eating, making sure that we incorporate the diet diversity plans. Yeah, definitely. I read something someplace that said if you have a delivery by c-section that something comes out and they'll give it to the baby in some type of way yeah meconium that's what is that meconium that's what they do and they think that helps to some extent okay i think it's interesting because when i speak to doctors and just reading studies i think the average person underestimates the amount of information that is currently being studied hasn't been studied And there's so many different, you know, unknowns. And I would say COVID probably brought a lot of that to the surface. Medicine is a practice. We forget that. Literally, it's a practice. Mm -hmm. And everything is like always changing. Has there been a big shift like in your practice now at all in general due to COVID and people being a little bit more mindful or thinking they're more mindful about science and research and things like that? So, you know, I'm a very cynical person. (laughs) Okay, good. Welcome to the club. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I think, I don't know. I just always think, why don't we learn? Just even going through COVID, I think we have a short memory or we, we would like to forget. It's two years now that we have been dealing with COVID and I just sometimes it's mind-blowing that it just reminds me of the very first day. I think definitely there are a lot has changed that obviously the things that we know now you know, compared to those first few weeks of COVID, oh my goodness, I remember everybody was so scared. Everything was, nobody knew what they're dealing with. But I think now we got to a point where we have some confidence that we are going to go through this. And sometimes I think that confidence um, can cause trouble because as soon as we get confidence, then we think, okay, I'm good. I don't need really to be careful. That's behind me. So let's go back to whatever I was doing before. Yeah. I always try to stick a little bit to those days to just bring that to future and not to forget what we went through. I'm hoping that people really you know understood you know the significance of our health going through this pandemic because unfortunately we were hit so hard it was mainly because of the other issues because of our poor diet because of our obesity because of all these chronic conditions diabetes Mm -hmm. hypertension that we have in the states i would say underneath the covid pandemic 
there's are other pandemics that we need to really go back and fix. Mm. Yeah. Everything else has been running in the background. And if you have a foundation mm -hmm. that can be built upon healthily, then you'll be okay. And it's interesting because we are a reactive species in general. And we touched on that a bit just as far as like doctors not necessarily eating the healthy things for themselves. And I think my secondhand scare with breast cancer was through my mother. And so she got breast cancer for the second time. And that's what scared me to create Superfood School eventually and to move into more of a health and wellness space because I felt so out of control. And we eventually found out that she didn't have that BRCA gene. So I'm like, okay, so that means that everything from here, I need to make sure that my diet and lifestyle is in a good position. And then also the stress because stress manifests into sure. cancer. With your breast cancer diagnosis, which was recently, what were some of the big things that helped to just push you through? So I think obviously when you're going through a serious illness diagnosis, at that point, I think it's just all your focus is on becoming healthy again, getting back to a square one, just like fixing things. So it's, it's a daunting path. It's just breast cancer. It just takes so long to just get to the treatment and do, there are a lot of different kinds of tests that you need to get done before you get the final treatment. And my diagnosis was right in the beginning of COVID. And it was a coincidence with our move from LA to Austin, which was crazy. And at the same time, we didn't have insurance, a lot of crazy stuff, uh, which as a doctor and now a patient, it actually opened my eye to whole craziness that we're dealing with as this broken healthcare system that we have. But I think I was locked out. So I just basically had like a stage one, so benign. It, it was a, if you want to get breast cancer, you want to get what I had, I would say. Okay. A little more manageable. Not, exactly. That was great. But then I think after that, so it affected my lifestyle and mindset and the way that I see things. So obviously I started thinking seriously about my health and then with my knowledge about gut microbiome and everything, I radically um, changed my diet. But then also the most important thing, as you mentioned, Lynette, is the role of stress that I realized that I have been a very um, high stress person all my life. As a high achiever, always go, 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 go. And then the capitalistic culture reinforces that. It rewards you for that. Yeah. And it basically what it did, it just opened my eyes to this whole mindfulness and being intentional, taking breaks, trying to manage my stress and try to work on my mindset. That's how I entered actually the world of coaching. And I learned a lot about regulating my nervous system, my emotions, my thoughts. And I'm so grateful about that because I think another pandemic that we are dealing with in the States is mental health. And COVID brought that up. A lot of people lost it because they had these tendencies. They couldn't take it. They just basically started drinking heavily. There were a lot of issues with depression, anxiety. 
and they, they go hand in hand. It's a lifestyle. If you want to be healthy, you should have a healthy mind. You should have a healthy body. You cannot just disregard one. You say, okay, I just focus only on my body and my health, physical health. You cannot be healthy as a whole human being. You are suffering from depression, anxiety, if you are having serious mental health issue, if you are really stressed out. So I think very important stress, as you said, is a known risk factor for any kind of cancer. It's just like mind blowing. So very important, I think, in the role of coaching, the role of mental health, that we have to change things. We have to try to figure out how we can help people to slow down, I think. You know, we have to work on this, how to help people becoming more mindful of their life and their whole being. Absolutely. That brings me to the second tip that I wanted to talk about from your ebook, which is the power of breath. With breath and stress and everything that goes along with that, what are some of the tips that you touched on in the book. I would love to have you share a little bit of that because I am so enlightened in the past year with breath, for sure. It's helped me with running so much. And I think that can help anyone in day-to-day life, just breath work. Yeah, it's amazing. Lynette, as you said, we forget about breathing, right? And this is the essence of our life, our being alive. If we stop breathing, so we are not going to be here. But again, nobody teaches us the physiology of breath and how it can affect our whole uh, body, our whole physics, our whole mind and everything. Basically now as modern human beings, we tend to just have these shallow breaths that we have constantly and we are not aware of them. But these days I do um, a lot of meditations these days and I actually focus and concentrate on my breath and it's the anchor we call it it basically keeps you here anchors you to the life to the being the type of breath that i work with my clients and patients is the belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing and that's the breath that basically you have a deep inhalation and then you have a longer exhalation very slow and with inhalation you basically inflate all our belly so it's like a balloon you inflate and push it out and with exhalation you deflate the balloon and that's how you activate the vagus nerve that i mentioned earlier it's the longest nerve that starts in our brain goes throughout our body mainly our digestive tract and when we are doing this kind of inhalation and exhalation we activate the vagus nerve because vagus nerve passes through our diaphragm so a big part of our nervous system is our autonomic nervous system that plays a role in the background and in the activity of a lot of our vital organs, like our heart, our lungs, our breathing, our heart pumping, our, our digestive tract, digesting food. These are the activities that they happen without our input. They're always happening in the background. We cannot control them. We cannot control our heart rate our breathing. Or our... So this is the role of the autonomic nervous system. Our autonomic nervous system has two main arms, sympathetic, parasympathetic. The sympathetic part is our fight or flight response. 
the parasympathetic one, which vagus nerve is the big nerve, the biggest nerve is a part of our parasympathetic one, is a rest or digest response. Okay. What happens when we get stressed out for any reason, our sympathetic nervous system gets activated. What it does, it increases our heart rate, our breathing, it uh, slows our digestion. And this way, basically what happens, sympathetic nervous system wants to put us in this stress response, fight or flight. If there is any danger, we can run away. So that is rooted in our survival, in our evolution. On the other side, parasympathetic nervous system comes after the stress response, cleans up after that, brings the heart rate down, slows down the breathing, and also promotes digestion. So what happens, our modern human being, we are spending majority of our time in fight or flight response, where sympathetic nervous system is activated. But really, I, I that's my hypothesis, that I say the goal of human being, the goal of our existence, the, the end of it, I think the philosophy, what Buddha was promoting is to live in parasympathetic nervous system, to basically be in rest or digest response. And that's where vagus nerve is activated. Wow. And what we do with breathing, with belly breathing, we activate our rest or digest response to the vagus nerve, to activating the vagus nerve. And that's where everything is calm and quiet. When we meditate, when we do yoga, we are moving ourselves away from fight or flight. We get into rest or digest. We get into the vagus nervous, you know, vagus nerve territory. So that's how breathing comes into play. Basically, breathing is the main tool that we have in order to get ourselves away from the stress response. Wow. Yeah, that's and it's free. It's free. <laughs> it's accessible. It's totally it's free because we have such a consumer driven society. We're always looking to buy things. And how you were saying earlier that, look, this kit that they're sending around, that's just another thing to buy. Mm-hmm. With that being said, how do you feel about probiotics as prebiotics? Are there any kind of hard and fast rules for people making selections with the probiotics and prebiotics? So you know what I tell my patients and clients? Prebiotic is basically the fiber, is the plant, is the food for our gut microbiome. It's great. I always promote taking prebiotics. And prebiotics, you can just like eat plants. You don't need to get supplements for that. You just basically go out and become plant-based. <laughs> That's what prebiotics is coming from. You don't need to go and spend your money and buy a bunch of you know, supplements. Probiotics on the other side, they're claimed to be bacteria or fungi. So those are our microbiome. So it's controversial. So American College of Gastroenterology uh, recently, they came out strongly. They said, you don't need to take probiotics unless you have a couple certain conditions, GI conditions, and it's not necessary really to take probiotics. We don't know because it's commercialized. Mm. Uh, We don't really know. They're not FDA approved. We don't know what they're consisted of. And the second thing, the most important thing is that we don't even know this 
probiotic that we take, if the bacteria and fungi that they claim to have, if they can pass through uh, stomach acid, if they are going to survive the effect of stomach acid before they get deep in our colon, they're needed. So that's why my recommendation is that definitely take prebiotics. That means increase in uh, dietary fiber. But prebiotic uh, supplements are fiber supplements like psyllium husk, like citrosyl, mm -hmm. like metamucil. They're pretty good and healthy. I also like them. I always tell my patients to take them, start taking them. Their function is a bit different than the fiber supplements compared to dietary supplements. Uh, sorry, dietary fiber because the supplements are pure fiber. When we eat, let's say, cabbage, lettuce, pepper, or whatever, when we eat plants, the fiber in plants are not readily available. They need to be digested. There are other elements inside right. that right. food. But when you take fiber supplements, it's all pure fiber. So it has slightly different function for gut health. And I always promote them. But probiotic is really, nobody knows. I usually do not like to start my patients on probiotics. If they're already on one and they think it's helping, I continue that. I don't want to you know, take it away. But if they aren't on any, I tell them, go and just get started on fermented food. Take kimchi, take uh, kombucha, sauerkraut, all these good stuff that we talked about. And then if your diet is rich in fiber, your gut microbiome is going to be diverse and resilient. You don't really need to add anything on top of that. It's good for people to understand. I, I definitely encourage everyone to tap into your site to be able to get all of these great, great, great resources of information. And then as well, you have a podcast. Now, this one is a little bit niche, but there's so much power in the niche. And I could even imagine just a community that you have, but you have a podcast that is targeted toward Persian women, even though you're coming out with a new podcast in English, which will be exciting. But the podcast for women is Persian women only, not Persian women only, but if you can understand Farsi, you can listen, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and teaching and sharing and all of that good stuff. I think that you've hinted along this conversation about what your woo-woo is. And that's the term that I like to use, woo-woo. And that could encompass anything. But everyone has something that is not necessarily perfectly scientific and explainable that helps to power them through life. And I would love to know what mm -hmm. a part of your daily, weekly, seasonal, whatever your practice is with your woo-woo. What is your woo-woo? <laughs> <laughs> what you got? Yes, I love this question. I believe we go through phases in our lives. Absolutely. So now I'm doing a lot of inner work. And if you would have told me this a few years ago, I would have laughed and I would have said, no way, because as a physician, I'm a very logical sort of, right? Give me facts, give me data, give me evidence. Mm -hmm. But really, there are things that you cannot explain, right? I believe that we have a mind, we have a body, we have a gut microbiome, and we have a soul 
I don't know where to put that soul. People may have different uh, definition for this. Some people may say self, true self, authentic self. I don't know. Some people refer to it as system. I don't know. You whatever you call it, whatever you believe in, and I feel like I'm just doing this soul searching to figure out really who I am and what what I can bring to the table, and with sort of like coaching and I'm just doing a lot of uh, conscious work, subconscious work, trying to access my neural pathway, figure things out. And it's interesting. So I, I, I believe in universe and the fact that universe somehow talks to you and channels to you and uh, you need to open up. You need to just basically open up to universe. You need to be curious about things that are happening. And as we briefly talked before this podcast, it's funny, I say that as a joke, but <laughs> I think it's just the energy exists, right? The energy, we all vibrating with a different energy. And I think our God microbiome has also this energy. Absolutely. <laughs> this is going to be probably 50 years from now that scientists come up with this. I think at the same time that we are existing in our own energy, we sort of like connect with our gut microbiome energy, with our brain energy, mind energy. It's so we are all connected and we are all connected to each other as human beings. Learn more at superfoodschool.org.